John chapter 6. We're going to continue where we were last week, but uh, let's just get started with some, some information. How long does it take a drop of water on average without flooding? How long does it take a drop of water to go all the way down the Mississippi from the headwaters? Is it one week, two weeks, one month, two months, three months, six months, a year? One week is not right. One month is not right. Not two weeks. So you're narrowing it down. Good job. Keep, keep it going. One year is not right. Not a week. Not six months. I think you're almost down to about what it is. Okay. The answer is three months is what they figured. What makes up the bulk of household dust? Pollen, insect droppings, dead human skin, smoke ash, decaying bugs, food particles. It's us. So we do the bulk of it. <laughs> we're, the, we're the reason for most of it. What state capital does not, the only one that does not have a McDonald's, unless it's been in the last couple months, which one of these doesn't have a McDonald's? What's one? Oh, you are so smart. That was a wild guess, wasn't it? It was a wild guess just because it was number one. Okay, what word or phrase did Bell recommend we use when answering the phone? Hello, good day, ahoy. What do you want? What's up? May I help you? Leave a message. Hello is not right. Good day is not right. Hey, you're, you're doing, what do you want is not right. <laughs> May I help you is not right. You got it. Hey, listen. You got it down to a, to almost a science. Ahoy! He wanted to, he wanted the answer. Ahoy! Here's one. Why did Heinz name his ketchup Heinz 57? Not the Heinz part, but the 57 is the question. It has 57 ingredients. It is his 57th try at the recipe. He created his ketchup ad recipe at age 57. He had 57 employees. He went public with it in 1957. He liked the number 57. He never said why. Number six. Number six, it is right. He just liked the number 57. <laughs> He's strange. Here's one for you. Why is Chicago called the Windy City? Is it because they experienced lots of wind from the lake effect. The residents were considered windbags. They were the largest producers of kites in the 1800s. They, in the early 1900s, they had the most tornadoes reported. The Indian tribe from there was the original wind talkers. It is not number one. It is number two. In the press in the early 1900s, they said that one of the chief characteristics of people from Chicago is there a bunch of windbags telling stories. And so it's stuck over the years, and most of us think it's number one. Teresa, are you in this room? What'd you say? I said thank you very much. Yes, yes. Aren't you glad you're not from Chicago or you're not in Chicago anymore? You can't, yeah, you came here. Okay, now we're talking about somebody who was not a windbag, somebody who was not exaggerating, but some of the people, their reaction was as if he's not telling the truth. We're in John chapter 6. It's an interesting message. Uh, actually, a message that is filled with all kinds of truth. Now, remember the setting, and so let me just remind those of you who were with us last week to see if we can remember a little bit of last week. I can't remember an hour ago, much less last week. So the whole point of John is to build up the faith. He's writing these accounts to help us to believe, even those of us who are believers, to just build up our faith in Jesus Christ. So John 6 is one of the seven miracles recorded, and the miracle in John chapter 6 was, is... 
the feeding of the 5,000, okay? And he does it, and we talked about some people are very skeptical of it, but he gives details. We know that it wasn't just um, an influence to sharing because we have phrases like they were filled full. We have the idea that there's baskets left over, and he gives us the details of using very small amount. The response of the crowds, do you remember what their response when they saw and experienced the miracle? What, what did they want? They wanted to make him king. Okay, so their response is, let's make him king. They call him a prophet, and so they want him. And, and they are looking more for a physical kingdom than a spiritual kingdom. They are looking for a physical um, a benefit from the king. And so Jesus responds and knows that his hour has not yet come. That's the phrase that shows up in John frequently. And so it wasn't yet his hour. What does Jesus do? Jesus, according to verse 15, if you look down in the text, what did he do with his disciples? He sends them away, okay, so they don't get caught up in this. And then what does Jesus do personally? He goes up into the mountain to pray. He isolates or separates himself from the crowd who is all gun hole and fanatical about the situation. We talked about it. We're just going to highlight it's not in chapter 6 in all the detail, but in Mark and in Matthew, it tells us that in the meantime, while the disciples, where Jesus was praying, the disciples are caught up in a storm. They're caught up for several hours. The Bible clearly gives us a timetable. And Jesus does several miracles in relationship to the disciples and them being on the storm, on the sea. What are some of the miracles that happened? There's four of them, actually. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Okay, he walks on the water to them. Then he, he calms the storm, but, but after he walks to them, Peter comes out and walks in the water, and then he calms the storm, and what's the fourth miracle? Immediately they, they come to the seaside, uh, to where they want the, the shore. So somehow they got an instant speedboat ride. And so those are the miracles that take place. The next morning then, the crowds find out where he is. They can't figure out how he got there, and so they follow along the seashore. They find Jesus in time, and now he has the dialogue of John chapter 6. The dialogue must be happening while they're, in tra- while they're walking, talking, because remember, they come to him and they start asking questions, but by the end of the chapter, where are they? Anybody remember? It's a little detail. They're in a synagogue, and he's teaching within the synagogue by the end of the chapter. So somewhere in this big crowd that, and people who have come, he's teaching, gets inside the building, and they're hearing all this. So this is a running dialogue that he has, or monologue that he has with those individuals. At the end of the sermon, and that's, this is all laying to what we want to just uh, touch on today, at the end of the sermon, the, what is the response of the people, the crowd? that had followed after him, that he had fed the day before. What is their, the bulk of their responses? They left, okay? In fact, if we go back and look at John chapter 6, and it says in verse 60, they, they make the comment. How do they view what Jesus just preached? They say this is a hard saying, difficult saying, it's tough, and I don't mean to be silly or playing with a pun. It's a, mere, it's a message all about taking the bread of life, and for them it's something that's hard to swallow, okay, in as far as the spiritual truth. And so they say it's a hard decide, they, uh, saying, they murmur, and then they don't walk. And our question is this, 
because to, to me, it illustrates a truth for you and me, is that a lot of people who hear the truth, even though it makes sense to us, they, they won't accept it. Why is that? What was it about the crowd that caused them to reject the teachings of Jesus? Okay, we know that that's going to be a fact because the seed and the sower, some of the seed falls on hard soil, some falls on the rocky soil, some falls where it, for a little while it produces fruit and then it kind of dries up, and some is very productive. And so not everybody who you share the gospel with is going to be responsive positively. And so we said that some of the reasons were, one, they put greater stock in, what, in getting their physical needs met more than the spiritual aspect of walking with Christ. Uh, we pointed that out, that they came because of the miracles. He says that they should stop laboring for the meat that perishes, which implies that that's what they're focused on. And so uh, we said, number two, that they were trusting more in themselves than they were in Christ. And we made the observation that they make this comment, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And their focus is on what do we do? How do we respond to this? And they took Jesus about laboring for the meat of God. They took that as, okay, what do we have to do? What good works do we have to do? And this is the bulk of the message Jesus is preaching about believing on me. Now remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience they are all about rituals, and he is saying, more than your feast and your rituals, you need to believe on me. And so we stopped last week right around this spot that he points out several times that you have to have faith in Christ alone, in him alone. Multiple references that he repeats that concept. He pointed out that you cannot come to understanding Christ is the one without the wooing of the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God has to draw men. We, he points out as well that they have a responsibility. Even though God is convicting them and God is wooing them, they have to respond, and he uses different terms and different phrases about believing. What are some of the words that we use and phrases that we use when we talk about believing in Christ? I used one, believing in Christ. What else might we use? Trust. Trust. Anything else? Okay. Okay, calling upon Christ as your Savior. What other phrases do people use? What's that? Accept Christ. Believe on Christ. Putting your faith in Christ. What do we use with kids? Ask Jesus... Okay, what are the, is there a real big difference between all those phrases? No, we're, we're dealing with a general truth. And so Jesus uses multiple phrases that are difficult, okay? That the audience says this is a hard saying, but he, they understood where he was going. Believe, eat me. In other words, take me into your life. Um, the idea, and, and when you talk about eating Christ, it's not just taking him, but the idea is he's your sustenance. He's the one that you can't have life without him. Come to me. All of these are used interchangeably throughout the text. And the reason we know that, and this is where we ended up, because they all, and you look at the phrases, come to me, believe in me, and they all end up in the same idea, that you're going to have eternal life. The idea that there's going to be a resurrection of your body if you believe, if you eat, if you come to him, if you receive him. And so we ended up right at this point that he is repeating by just looking at all the verses. 
He is repeating this concept over and over and over in this singular message to these people. Why? Why does he become so involved with repeating the same phrase or the same idea, the same concept? Okay, is that, is that true today? Okay, that some people don't get it unless they hear it multiple times. What did you say? Okay. Okay. Okay, let me ask you this question. How many here heard the gospel multiple times before you got saved? Okay, a lot of you. A lot of you had that be the case. Some of us, we were very new to it. It was hit us right out at the very beginning. And so there's use of repetition. Repetition tells us that this is a what truth? What type of truth? Okay, it's a very important truth. It's very important. It, I think what, you, what, you've, uh, what you've stated is the reality that Jesus knows the value of repeating truth. Okay? It, if you go through the scriptures, you're going to find that happen. Where John writes the gospel, and then when he writes the epistles, what does he say? He says, I am writing unto you some of the same things I've wrote before. Why is that the case? Because... Some of us, how many times do we need to hear something to sink in? Or, or let's put it this way. So we are born again. Once we're born again, as soon as we hear about a truth, we got it. Yes, no? No. It doesn't work that way? Why not? <laughs> What'd you say? We're dense at times. Okay, we're dense at times. Also, also, don't we, don't we at times become complacent? Okay, so you hear a message on prayer. Boom, I'm going to go pray. After a couple, three, four weeks, what might happen? You're, you're right back to where you were before. Okay, and so repetition is really valuable. For those of you doing Bible studies and teaching, this is an important illustration or observation that you can make. That sometimes, and even as you share the gospel, you might have to share the gospel from different angles. Why is that? Because not everybody gets at the same time, right? And they might understand a different illustration. They might understand a different concept. And so it comes together where repeating truth it does work to get through to hard hearts. Don't give up with repeating the truth because their hearts are hard. We quickly say, oh, they rejected, therefore, you know, let's not bother anymore. Can you think of anybody in the scripture that heard truth multiple times before they responded? Saul. Okay, who becomes the, the apostle Paul? Okay, and so it's very important, just a tremendous truth. Now, let's ask this question. Is it hard for many people today to simply trust in Jesus? Okay, wh why is that? What do they, what do they people trust in besides Christ? Themselves? What's that? Science. Okay, thank you. Money? Okay. So we have all these things that in religious systems... Usually it relies upon your church or something you do. That's today. Okay, what about, what about even believers? Even, okay, we're born again now. We got saved. Is there still 
in, in, in the heart, is there still a tendency that you've got to do a whole lot to gain God's favor? Okay, is there some truth to that? There's some truth to that. But what happens, where, what happens in some churches? What do they start running with? Rules, regulations, traditions. And you can't be right with God unless you obey whatever we tell you. So there, there's the catch in Scripture. And, and the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, torn here because faith without works is dead. Okay, and yet at the same time, what is our primary um, need in order to be walking with the Lord? Is it the works? Okay, it's walking with the Lord. It's abiding in Him. It is fellowship with Christ. And yet, do we often substitute works for fellowship with Christ? Even as believers, is that a battle? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so some work very hard to improve themselves, to get wore down, but have very little time in meditation and prayer and the Word of God. And so we have some of these same battles that they did. Let me go to number three. They expected him to keep on amazing and thrilling them. Okay, they first came. Do you remember the setting? We didn't talk about it today, but last week. In John chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, or right at verse 3, why did so many of these people come to Jesus in the first place? What drew them? The miracles, thank you. Okay, and so now what miracle did Jesus just do the day before? The important miracle. The bread, okay, he fed all these thousands. And what do they want from him? Okay, jump into the story, go further into the sermon. And in verse 30, after the miracle has been done, they said therefore to him, what sign do you show that we may see and believe? And what works, uh, what dost thou work? Wait a minute. Did he already show them a sign? Yes? Okay. But what do they want? Okay, one more. Are they like little children? Okay. So we, we have this text, and they bring up, and in this story, and this is important because it fills in where, where, what he speaks to. Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so basically what they're getting at is this idea that in the Old Testament the Messiah was predicted to be a greater prophet than Moses. Okay? So if you're sitting there and you're thinking he's got to be greater than Moses, what do you expect him to do? More miracles. More even than Moses, okay? Now think this through. Think this through. They're going to bring up the manna. What do you know about the supplying of the manna? What's that? It lasted one day. Okay, what else do you know about the manna? It was there every day. So how many days did a miracle take place? For how many years? Okay, but it lasted one day. They had responsibility to go get it and collect it. And so they're going to bring up, if you're greater than Moses, then you should do something better than Moses did. How does the manna of Moses compare to the bread that Jesus just made the day before? Well, let's back up from a physical point of view. From a physical point of view, if you're the crowd and you have just eaten the bread yesterday, 
And you're comparing this to what Moses did years gone by. Okay, we already alluded to it. They're expecting more bread. Because how often did the manna come? Okay, what else was different about it? When did the manna show up? In the morning. Charlie? You couldn't store the manna. Yeah, and that's what the spiritual aspect of what we're getting to, what, what Jesus is going to get to, you can take me. Yeah, um, but just keeping it from a purely, uh, not spiritual, from a physical point of view right now. Okay, we're going to get to some of these other thoughts. But from a physical point of view, is Jesus, did he do something greater than Moses? Okay, he had lots of food. Okay. Okay. Okay, they had one meal out of it, okay? But there was leftovers, okay? What did Jesus do, use to make the manna, uh, make the bread in the wilderness? Something already existing. Okay, he had the loaves and the fish. He, his miracle, and I don't mean to diminish it, I'm talking from a skeptical point of view. He merely multiplied what was there. What, from Moses' point of view, from... You know, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. It came from heaven. Okay. So from their skeptical point of view, did Jesus do as great as what Moses did? Not yet. Not yet. So they're looking and they're saying, okay, you know, even though it's a miracle, we understand. And we know the end of the story. We know where Jesus was going. But put yourself in the sandals of the, of the skeptic who is hearing Jesus starting to speak, and they're going, yeah, but you didn't do as big as what Moses did. And from their point of view, you got to do more miracles. Because Moses did more miracles than, than just the provision of manna. Yes? Okay, um, the manna came down from heaven. You simply supplied the, multiplied the stuff. Moses did it every day. You did it yesterday. So if you're going to show us another sign and be as great as Moses, what should you do for us today? You should feed us again. Yes? Does that make sense where they're coming from? Okay, and so Jesus is going to you know, respond and uh, basically, ba- here's where they're at. They're basically saying, you got to wow us again. Okay, little kids, you do something that is, you know, really, really amazing to them and really scary to them. What do they want you to do? They they want you to do it again and even more of it. Okay, so that's what they're doing. Wow me some more, Jesus, if you're really better than Moses. Now, Jesus is going to respond, okay? And before we do that, is this true? Do people still want Jesus to do fantastic for them or they won't follow him? Okay, do people still want physical? Yes, they do. Do some say, give a miracle and a blessing or I'm not going to follow you? Is there some of that thinking? Yes, there is. Is there some that want the church to be entertaining and provide all kinds of stuff for them? Yes or no? Okay, that's true. Some of the missionaries we work with who work with, say, um, um, out west and they're working with peoples on the reservation, what, keeps, what do they say the people keep on coming for? Food, charity, and as soon as you don't give them that, they don't come. Okay, so we still have that battle today. That still happens. Some think that everything related with Christ needs to pump me up. I need to be pumped up. 
You know, come on, preacher, pump me up. Do something to make me enthusiastic and excited about following the Lord. And I don't, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have inspirational messages, but frankly, your pumping up with the Lord has to come from your walking with Him. Yeah, abiding with Him. And so some Christian circles and ministries, they focus on getting excitement only and enthusiasm. We understand that that's still around. It's part of human nature. So Jesus responds, and I, and I want you just to catch this before we go into the text. Elsewhere he has already warned. He's given a sermon on the mount that talks about many people can have wonderful things, and yet he will say unto them, I knew you not. Remember, we have cast out demons, we have done this, we have done that. So miracles and spectacular alone doesn't mean it's godly. Jesus responds, and look at how he responds in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gave it to you. Okay? What's he mean by that? They're comparing Jesus with Moses. Okay? And he's trying to make sure you understand it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread anyway. Who was it? It was God. Okay, so he's going to correct them. And he's going to remind them that even in the passages of the Old Testament, it's the Lord that has given this. And the Lord gave it and sent it from heaven. By the way, that's going to help out these next few words. This next ex explanation. Because Jesus is going to say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Okay, so he wants to clarify their point of theology, which is very important. And so Jesus is going to be talking in the next few verses. He's going to say, I'm giving you a better bread than what, what you got in the Old Testament, what your ancestors got. And he's basically going to talk about he which came down from heaven and gives life. Jesus says, I am the he. I am this bread of life. I am superior to the manna that they got in the Old Testament. So let's chart it. Let's do a, con a comparison. Okay, man of the Old Testament, it came down from heaven. What about Jesus Christ? What's that? Same thing. He came down from heaven. Okay, provided by God. Okay, actually, somebody said it. Was God, okay. Is sent by God. He will use that phrase repeatedly and he's going to make it clear. <coughs> dry spot. Excuse me. Not only was he <clears throat> not only was he sent by God, but as somebody said he's, he is God. Okay, what do we have here? What's your comparison? Okay, we got to ingest spiritually. Okay, require spiritual eating. What about this one? A gift from God. Now we're talking about the gift is God himself. Okay, as you've already alluded to. Sustain physical life for a while. Okay, so now we're getting into gave eternal life. <clears throat> That's going to last forever and ever. Must eat daily. What is what Christ provides? What is makes it superior? Okay, eat just one time, just one time, and you have eternal life. Was perishable. You pointed this out. It didn't last. What about what Jesus gives? Okay, so we're talking about he is forever. For one era of time, what I mean was, it was for the Jews in the wilderness, period. 
Okay? It didn't last. Remember, it didn't last in the promised land, etc., etc. What do we have about Jesus Christ? Okay, so we're talking for all time. And limiting, it was just for the Hebrews. Okay, now we're talking about whosoever. Okay, so the superiority, Jesus is making it very clear. He's saying, okay, I am far superior, much better than the manna that you had. And then he brings us to number four. The reason that many people do not accept, they did not accept Christ, and it still happens today, is they don't accept the claims of Jesus. This sermon is loaded with claims of Jesus Christ, of who he is. And in particular, what is he claiming? Bottom line, who is he claiming to be? Okay, so if you go through the text, okay, and watch what Jesus is saying and then how he develops it, and he, then he swings around, says it again, swings around and says it again. But we jump down to verse 29. He answered and said, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom God hath sent. And so they basically say, Wait a minute, we're to believe on you? Who are you? Moses was better than you. He did the manna better than you. And Jesus is going to say, Now wait a minute. The manna came down from heaven. And what's he going to claim? I came down from heaven as well. So if you see that in verse 33, for the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. And so he's going to claim that he originates from, from heaven, okay? And that tells you and me and should have told them that he is, he's God, okay? Now did they understand him? Okay, verse 41, as he made this claim, they murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Do they have a clue what he is claiming? Do they understand his claim, that he's claiming to be divine? They have a, they have a hint of this because notice the next verse. What do they say? You can't be from heaven because you're... The, what are you, you're claiming to be the son of God. We know you, you're the son of? Okay, and so they're going to come back at him and they're going to, they're going to you know, re, try to resist him and by, by re, rehearsing his earthly history, his family history. And so they're, they're, they're resisting his claim of basically being of divine origins, of heavenly origin. But he's going to say it several more times. He's going to keep on saying this and saying this. Why is that? Because Jesus in this dialogue, in this monologue, however you want to call it, he is making sure that he is clearly saying, I am God in the flesh. I am God in the flesh. He pro- he made, his claim is, I came from heaven. I originated in heaven. Dissect it a little bit more with me. What do you see in verse 32 and 33 that indicates deity? That indicates that he is, he is more than just a commoner. Okay, he's going to use that my father, that intimate term. Let me develop. He, he's going to, bottom line is he's going to claim to be better than Moses. Okay? That's the comparison they're making. You're, you know, are you better than Moses? And the bottom line is, I am. Doesn't this remind you of the book of Hebrews? The first two chapters? The book of Hebrews talks about he is better than Moses. He is better than Abraham. He is better than the prophets. He's even better than the angels in heaven. 
Okay, and so they build up this argument, he is superior, and here's the same thing. He's doing the same thing in this text. What do you see? It's repeated several times, like in verse 39. What stayed here? This is the will of him which sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up. We have verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me. Everyone that which sees the Son and believes him has everlasting life. What do you see in verse 44, where he says, you know, that I came down from heaven. Verse 54, and that upset them, that whoso eats my flesh, that, 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 that drinks my blood, has eternal life. What do you see there? Okay, he's sent, okay, and as well, he's going to give eternal life, which all these have, to, and he's the one that's going to resurrect people. Who in the Old Testament resurrected people? Which prophet? Elisha? Elisha? I'm, and you're, you're hesitant because did it happen much? Okay. It hadn't ha it did happen, but it was it was rare. Okay. And as soon as they would think somebody's raised from the dead, what would you assume? If somebody had the power to raise the dead, okay, they gotta be of divine something. Okay, and so he's claiming resurrection. He's claiming as well that he gives eternal life. Well, friend, who's the only one that can give eternal life? an eternal being, right? God himself. He's going to claim in this passage he will keep every believer safe. Who else can keep people safe? Can you keep yourself safe spiritually? Secured? No. Who's the one that keeps you secured? God. And Jesus said, I and my Father are one, okay? And if you're in my Father's hand, then we keep you. Verse 35, he claims that he will satisfy the spiritual hunger and they will never ever hunger anymore. Who on earth, what human can satisfy our desires so we never, they're, they're all met? What person can do that? None. None. So as well, he ends up basically saying, if you reject me, you're going to be damned forever. All of this together if you're listening to the message, all of it together would get you to say, he's really unique. He's special. He's from God. Now, understand, you're coming from a point of view, do you believe in the resurrection? If you're, if you're the audience back then, do you believe in a resurrection? Do, do the commoners believe? Um, the Sadducees did not believe it. But who did most of the people listen to? The Pharisees. Did the Pharisees believe in a resurrection? Yes, they did. And so do most of the commoners believe that there's a kingdom in one day? Yeah, they do. Do most of them say, hey, listen, um, I don't want to be damned? Okay, that's, that's where most of these Jewish people are. Do they want to talk about, did they ever hear in the Old Testament the idea of eternal fountains? providing you know, refreshment. Yes, that's out of the Psalms and out of some of the prophecies that we looked at a few weeks back that Isaiah mentions it. So you have all these different things that from a Jewish concept, if you had any understanding, you're looking and saying, wow. Now, if you're a Gentile, it doesn't click. But if you're a Jew, it clicks because you have familiarity with the Old Testament. And so they're understanding now, today, do people still question Jesus' claims? Like what? Modern day, do people question Jesus' claims of virgin birth? That he was God. 
that he rose from the dead. Okay, that, well, they'll even question that reality. Do people question uh, whether Jesus is alive in heaven today? We, we have all those things. That is common that they question his deity. They question his ability to do miracles. They, people even question, does he really care about me? You have people who struggle with Jesus being the creator. What's the most common teaching right now? Evolution, that there is no creator. Uh, do you have people, even, even so-called claiming believers, that struggle with letting him be Lord of their life? Sure. So you have the authority. So you and I need to remember this. God exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every... Okay, so we have Jesus Christ being exalted. But people reject because they don't want to submit to the claims of Jesus Christ. So some people you talk to, this is a real struggle. They, they question who Jesus is and does he have the authority. Some will put more stock in what others think than what Jesus wants. Does this sound like anybody that you've ever run into and shared the gospel? That they, oh, that makes sense to me, but if I did... I, yeah, there would be people that would be upset with me. My family wouldn't like it. So here in this passage, okay, remember what happens without, without going through all the text. They ask him these questions, and they, they have interchange with him, and they responded to him. It says that they heard him, but they were also murmuring. Okay, when they're murmuring and they're, they're discussing who Jesus is, they're talking amongst themselves. And so they're, they're getting what Jesus said, but they're also discussing this here in their, in their conversation. Okay, and several times it says that they were talking amongst themselves. So they're listening to Jesus, but they're also listening to their compatriots. And so the bottom line comes to this, that in the end, after hearing him, they choose not to follow him. Who may have influenced them more than the claims of Jesus? The crowd, the, the Pharisees, the, the family, the others around them. Does that ever happen today? Do people hear the Bible, but then they are influenced in their response by family and friends? Yes, no? Okay, here, did, the, did these people follow? Okay, it, 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 their point is that, that people today, still the same thing, people are influenced oftentimes by crowds and by others around them. Let me get to number six. They thought Christ was asking too much of them. It's a hard saying. Who can believe this? In reality, what would it have cost them to become his true disciple? You put yourself back in their sandals. If you're really going to become a follower of Christ, what might happen to you? What do you mean? Be ostracized. Could they be put, could they be put out of the synagogue and temple? Okay, what else? They could be what? Some are going to be in time, absolutely. We know that that's happening in time, that some of the people who follow Christ, their lives were on the line. In fact, I'll give you one illustration. Do you remember right before Jesus is going to be arrested, his Passion Week, they were trying to kill not only Jesus, but there was somebody else that benefited. Who? Lazarus they wanted to kill. Okay? So they could lose their lives. What else might they lose? What's that? Shunned by their family. Could that happen to them? 
Yep. Anything else? Their livelihood? How so? Okay. Right. Okay. So in that culture, if you're ostracized from the synagogue, yeah, hey, you, you, community business have nothing to do with you. So following Christ could cost a lot. Yes? Would you grant that? Okay. So these people, they, they have something to risk. Okay? And yet, what is the whole duty of man? Do you remember this one from the Old Testament? What is it? Yeah, yeah, bottom line. Oops, sorry. Bottom line is serve and love the Lord thy God with all thy heart to strength. Okay, so many stopped, and I, this one is just the conclusion of the whole matter. How come many of them did not listen? How come many of them had nothing to do with Christ? Adding it all together, they weren't believers. They just had no desire. We know that that is true even today. Is there a reason that some may come and hear the gospel, may even sit under your Bible teaching, you're doing Bible studies, and then after a while they want nothing to do with it? Could it be because they weren't really believers in the first place? They went out from us because they were not of us, okay? And so you have all of these put together. Okay, so at the conclusion, this brings us to the end of the sermon. Jesus has made some tremendous claims. And it says, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples walked back, no more with him. Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks them what pointed question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Will you also go away? Okay, so now they're put on. And, and remember the context of this time period. Even though he did this sermon... This is in the period of time yeah, that's later in his ministry where he's training the 12, getting them ready for his departure. And while he's training the 12, this incident comes up. And so all of this incident has tremendous impact on the 12. Do you remember part of the reason they feared in the storm? We said last week, they had forgotten the miracle of the loaves Okay, and so they started fearing, and Jesus was trying to, you know, get them to remember because it is easy in a crisis to forget God's faithfulness yesterday. Is that true? Do you ever run into that? Okay, in today's crises, we forget God's faithfulness from the past. And so he's drawing all this together and helping them to bring, and so he's going to put them on the spot. Others have been listening to others. People are walking away. They didn't like Jesus' claims. And so, okay, what do you, you know, will you also go away? And who speaks up for the 12? Yeah, surprise! Who's the one who's the mouthpiece? And none of us are surprised by this. And Peter basically answers the question with a question. Okay? Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, how would you rephrase that? It's very simple. How would you rephrase it? Yeah. You got it. Okay. And he says, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that you are this Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they make a tremendous, and this isn't the first time they've made this profession. Okay. They've made this claim before. 
I mean, when Peter first got called, remember the, uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? When he had that fishing boat experience, he fell down and said, my Lord and my God, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He has already at times been very vocal about Jesus being the Son of God. Um, we pointed that out. Patty, you asked the question last week where it says, since you be the Son of God, allow me to come out. And uh, you question, and I really appreciate it, you said, the if you be the Son of God. Okay, does that mean a doubt on his part? And we pointed out that, that the, the conditional clause there indicates since you are the Son of God. They've had the, the belief, but he's putting them on the, on the mark now. We have and continue to believe you are the Son of God. You alone have the words of life for now and the next. Whom shall we go to? And then Jesus has a rebuke. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Why did he say this? We, who's he referring to? Okay. So Judas is an unbeliever. Yes? Okay. Why did Jesus say this? Pardon me, sorry, what? Okay, they're going to be surprised later on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, later on they're going to they're going to get more they can look back and say, "Oh, that's what he meant here." Yeah, cuz remember when they do the last supper when he says, "Whatever you go and do thou whatsoever you do." Yeah, got you you know what I mean, do quickly. And they say, you know, didn't know at the time, but now we know he was so there's going to be recollection. Is there any other reason why he may have said Oh, that's, that's, there's no doubt that he, Jesus was gracious with Judas. What did Peter claim? Go back a sentence. What did Peter claim? We all believe. We all believe. What's Jesus correcting? The word all. Yeah, the, the we all. The we all. Go ahead, Ken. What, were you, what are you getting at? That's it. Yeah, yeah. Because is it easy to say we're all, we all love the Lord? Right? We all love the Lord, right? Ah, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What might God know? That some of us are just kind of saying it and not really living it, and we're riding on, in politics, what do they call it? Riding on the coattails of others. And uh, so Jesus is, is he doing this to say, number one, number one, Peter, you don't know the hearts of everybody, and everyone needs to personally believe, and one of you really isn't yet a believer. Hey, Judas, I'm talking about you. Yeah. Is that all, possibly all that together? Bob, what were you going to add to it? Last week you, were, you pointed this out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is like I, like I say, we all love the Lord. Well, that might give false, false assurances to some people. Okay? And yet at the same time we understand that 
as a group, we want to serve the Lord, but we still have to evaluate each and every one of us individually. So it has to be a personal decision, not a group decision. Which, by the way, a lot of those people, is it influential to be a group decision when hundreds walk away? Would that be pressure? Yeah. Tremendous story. Just a tremendous passage. Am I missing something that you want to throw out before I move to another text? Anybody want to throw something else out on this story, this account? Go ahead, Charlie, and then we'll go back, Bob. Oops. Is he weeding them out? Do you think that's a reality? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That he is... Yeah. Well, even today, even today, do we, does that phrase kind of make us go... Mm-hmm. Yes, no? Yeah. But if I'm hearing it, if I'm hearing it from the first time, and he says, eat my flesh, does that kind of make you, make you like, did I hear him right? Now, they, they, and he clarifies it. He makes it very clear it's spiritual. But folk, do others confuse the spiritual truth that Jesus was saying even today? There's a whole church that says you need to eat the body of Christ to have forgiveness. You take in, you eat the actual body of Christ in order to have forgiveness of sin. There's a whole group that teaches that. So there's, I, I, Charlie, I think you're absolutely right. He's weeding out. Bob? Oh, so why are we asking it? <laughs> oh, oh, good. Did you hear what he said? Um, how many people in this crowd later on may have become believers? Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's a good possibility, Right? that people did believe even from this crowd. Which again, takes us back to that idea, share the truth, share the truth, share the truth. Let's, let's just get started. We have just a couple, of, a few minutes here. Let's get started on another, another text, okay? In Matthew chapter 18, Mark chapter 9. Let's, let's, let's start with Ma- Mark 9. Mark 9, if you want to flip there, okay? Um, this is right after the transfiguration, There's a couple different texts. Mark 9, Luke 9, you're going to need both. And so uh, we're at a different time frame. Jesus goes up onto the mountain transfiguration. You know all about this story. You understand that that's when he's transfigured and Moses and Elijah come to him. Question, what were they talking about? The disciples are sitting there and observing. They're listening. They're wowed by this whole thing. What was Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about? Question, the answer. Do we know or don't we know? Let's start with that. Do we know? We do. There's one phrase in one text that tells us what they discussed. It's in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9. That it t- tells that they discussed something. Something that was coming up. And it's the only gospel that gives us this, this hint. And it plays into the rest of the passage. 
Anybody find it yet? It's in Luke 9, verse 31. If it's helpful, it comes after 9.30. Okay. What does it, what does it say? Okay. So they're discussing his demise, his upcoming death. That's going to take place in Jerusalem, etc. After that, all of a sudden, the shining and everything is done. Jesus then is talking to the disciples. What does Jesus, first thing they do when they come down to the mount, this is the Mark chapter 9. What does Jesus talk about with his disciples? What's that? So he revisits just what they were talking about on the mountain. Talks about his decease. He's going to be deceased in Jerusalem, his demise. Then when he gets the disciples together, he talks about, I'm going to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die. What is the response of the disciples? When he says that, what is their response? What's it say? They didn't understand. What else does it say? Okay. Did you, did you answer? Did, are you looking a little bit further? What else did they, did they, they didn't understand? I think it says a couple different things. They what? They were, somebody said it. Is that you? Okay, they don't understand, but they're afraid to, that, I'm so glad none of us ever do that. Okay. We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to ask questions sometimes because we're afraid of the answers. Yes, no? Okay. What else happens? Is there anything else that they do? Go a little bit further in Mark. In Mark. What's that? Well, we're down at the bottom now. That, that's up at the mount. Okay, we're down at the bottom, further down. In, uh, they're down at the bottom of the mount. They, he says to everybody together, now it's all 12 of them. He says, I'm going to die, go to Jerusalem. They don't understand. They don't ask questions. And then they have a discussion amongst themselves. What is the discussion amongst themselves? What? I, what? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus just said he's going to die. And who are the disciples concerned about? Does that make sense to you? Does it ever make sense that disciples can get selfish? Hmm. Let's pick up next week. Okay. And develop that whole thought. Thanks for listening, guys.